You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. And we pray right now and we gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the authority of the Lord God Almighty Himself, under His Word, filled by His Holy Spirit, and guided, I pray, for Your glory, O God. That this time right now that we gather, we are seeking to encounter the living God. To be transformed by His truth. To walk in His ways. To know His wisdom. To be filled with His love and spurred on through the purpose that the Great Commission might be filled with the time and the life that You have entrusted to us. Oh God, I beg You that no heart is left untouched today. I ask you, O God, there would be such a sense of power and love and joy, that there would be a freedom, that there would be granted, O Lord, a sense of peace as faith wells up within us, as your people, Lord, desire you more than anything else. Father, we are frail. We are weak. I am so needy, O God, of you. And that's why we pray. It's why I kneel. That's why we come together now to petition you. For you are the only one who can cause these things to happen. And I know you hear. And I know you are listening right now. I'm just so blessed by that. I can't believe it. The God of the universe would hear our prayers and care for us so much. Would you then respond as we declare our need for you and our love for you, O God, that you would be working in supernatural ways in our midst. The holy transcendent God making his way and presence known among a lowly and sinful people. Awesome truth. Incredible God, the glory of the gospel among us now. So you do that, Lord. You do that so you are lifted up and you are honored. And no man is seen, but the Lord God Almighty is just honored and praised. And every person here thinking about you and loving you and being transformed by you. Your time, Lord, is your church and your people. And we're begging for your presence. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. If you agree, please say amen. Amen. All right, week number two in our series here called In God We Trust, Unwavering Faith Within Turbulent Times. And because this is such an important truth today and it's such an important truth for us, um, we want to stick it to you, all right? We want to stick this truth to you. And so we've handed uh, stickers. As you, can, you got some stickers in the house today? You got some stickers. So not just kids get to play, all right? We get to play too, all right? But this sticker is a reminder of what, again, is so essential in this path of trust and this walk of faith. So here's our encouragement. Um, we put some times a transparent sticker. Won't leave a lot of goop behind, which is really great. And you can put it on your steering wheel. It's a good idea. Uh, you can put it on your laptop. Forget those other symbols, all right? This is a way better one to remember. Uh, you can put it on your bathroom mirror. If that's somewhere you're gonna, you can stick it on your forehead. I don't care. But just somewhere, somewhere where you will know that it's there and you'll be reminded of what it says. Because imagine what will happen. The verse that is here on the sticker and you commit it to memory. It's one of those things that gets in your heart at the strangest of times and the most unexpected maybe moments. All of a sudden, this first floods to our mind, renews us, spurs us on in faith and allows us, allows us to give God glory, especially within the times that we need to exercise our faith the most. Okay, so this isn't just something to put and just kind of throw it somewhere useless. Use it, use it, be reminded of it and commit that scripture to memory as we're in this series right now okay 
So with that being said, open your Bibles please to uh, Psalm 31. And our sermon title uh, today is uh, Trust Within Trial. Trust within trial. This is where trust will be seen. This is where faith will be proven. Here's our text, uh, Psalm 31. Make sure your neighbor has a Bible as well. Right now we're encouraging each other in the Word of God. This is what God uses to change our lives. Psalm 31 uh, verse 9 says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. David is in the midst of great, tremendous persecution, trial, opposition. Uh, My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. Uh, My life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity. And he says, my bones waste away. I mean, David's in deep, man. Like, this is tough. He's in a tough spot. He says, because of all my adversaries, I've become a reproach. Uh, especially to my neighbors, uh, as an object of dread to my acquaintances. Uh, Those who see me, they run from me. Those who see me in the street, they flee from me. I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many in terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. Here's the turning point, verse 14, first word. But, but I trust in you, O Lord. I love this. I say, I say, it's such a good word. I pronounce, I declare, I communicate right now to all who are listening. I say you are my God. Amen, church? I say you are my God. My times are in your hand, the sovereignty of God. My times are in your hand, O God. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. And then this is a wonderful phrase. Make your face shine on your servant. Yes, Lord, in this place today, supernatural God, Sending upon his people who love him and trust him. Make your face shine upon your servant. Make this a Holy Spirit supernatural moment. Make this a service that is drenched by the power and the grace of God. Please, Lord, that you may be glorified. Would you do that? Not here to go through the motions, here to encounter you, Lord. We need you. Make your face to shine upon the servants represented here in this room. Save me in your steadfast love. Oh, Lord, let me not be put to shame. For I call upon you, praying to him. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and in contempt. Three words and really three moves that we see within this text today that Dave was inspired to write here by the Holy Spirit. I want to give them to you straight up and we'll unpack them one at a time. Three main moves. They're this. We see the, the situation first. Then we're going to see the stand And then we'll see the supplication, uh, the prayer. So the situation, the stand, and the supplication. Many of you have more questions than answers. Let me help you get those questions answered. Now, let's start with point number one then, which is the situation. The situation is this. Um, I need grace in the midst of my distress. I need grace. I I need the grace of God in the midst of my distress. This is what David is saying. Look at verse nine. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. My life is spent with sorrow. I mean, his language is so strong here. My years with sighing, my strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. Loved ones, I want you to see, in fact, I need you to see here that in the midst of the pursuit of trust in God, okay, so when we're pursuing God by faith, when we are following hard after God. In the midst of this pursuit, it does not exclude lament. 
as I seek to trust in God, it includes times of lament. What I mean is, growing faith does not eliminate growing pains. Growing faith, hear this, does not eliminate groaning hearts. A groaning heart. Great faith includes great trials. And hear this too. Great faith at times will include also great grief. Great faith at times will also include great grief. When the, when the muscle is, is stretched, exercised, it is literally damaged. It is torn in its, in its, in its, in its fibers. And it's painful when the muscle gets stretched. But then it returns by the glorious creation of God in the human body. It, it repairs itself and is strengthened and returns stronger. So again, when the muscle is stretched, I'm not sure why I'm pointing to my bicep here. That's a bad example, all right? But if you take a, a muscle that is there and it's torn, it hurts. But then it's repaired and comes back. That's the same with faith. Faith is the same way. Faith is seen through great effort and great trials. And so when it is torn by the supernatural working of God's Spirit, it is repaired and actually comes back stronger. Look at what Charles Spurgeon said here um, on this quote. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, Storms and tempests are the things that make men tough and hardy mariners. They see the works of the Lord and His great wonders in the deep. Okay, The, the difficulties of life. But then he says this. So with Christians, I love this phrase, Great faith must have great trials. Great faith must have great trials. We have options in this life. We do. If you want life to be easy, if we want things to go smooth, if we don't want any cost, then we can just live in that way. We can live with no effort for the Lord. We can live with no faith. We can make it about ourselves. We can accumulate more possessions. We can look for an easy street. We can run the wide road if we want to, and that'll be easy. But there won't be any faith, and there won't be any power. But if you want to have a great faith, and you want to be used by the Lord, and you want to see Him do mighty things in your life, you cannot, I cannot avoid the reality that great faith must come through great trials. And the culture that we are surrounded in, the culture of compromise, we are pleading, we are pleading with the Lord to make us children of trust. Again, again, notice the pain that David is in as his eyes are wasted Put yourself in the shoes of David. His soul and body is wasted also. Verse 10, it says, His life is spent with sorrow. His years with sighing. His strength is failing. He says, My bones waste away. Not exactly a pep talk from David, is it? Right? You're looking at this, you're like, Man, like wasting away and eyes filled with grief and the, and the bones and all this. You're just like, Man, like it's not a pep talk. Listen, but it is this it is a faith walk. David's not giving us a pep talk. But in one sense, he is encouraging us with the reality of a faith walk. Notice David's pain was physical. My strength fails, he says. Notice his pain was emotional. I had grief and sighing, he says. Notice his pain was social. People flee from me in the street. Notice his pain was mortal. People are trying to plot and kill me, he says. They're trying to take my life, which is verse 13. There's no doubt, there's no doubt, loved ones, that path of trust includes a path of trial. And notice this. If we're going to be trained in trust, if we will see our faith strengthened, at times there will be groaning. At times there will be sighing. At times there will be grieving. 
at times there will be wasting. This is a reality for those of us who are sincerely following the Lord. There will be times when we have a tremendous amount of pain within our lives as we walk down the path of faith. This is again what we see in front of us right now. True faith is not pain-free faith. But I also want you to see here that David's pain is also spiritual. Let's look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. He says, My strength fails because of my iniquity. So, we're learning here. Here's an important principle. Any distress in our lives that is used to reveal sin within our lives is a grace-filled distress. Say that again. Any time the Lord allows distress to come in, and that distress is used to reveal sin in our lives, to draw us closer to the Lord God, that distress within that difficult trial actually contains the grace of God. David saw this. David's main opposition was not anything to do with him. It was outside people who hated him because of his love and his pursuit of God. But within this trial and within his distress, he was also able to see levels of his own iniquity that was drawing him closer to God to be more used by God as well. That's the power of what we're seeing in life. The design of our God in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our distress, that actually includes grace right now. Can you and I stop long enough to thank God and see how God has deposited grace in the midst of our distress. Can we do that? The wise person, the mature believer in Jesus Christ, sees the distress, probably doesn't like the distress, but is wise enough to look for God's grace in the midst of the trial as he is using this to get our attention and to grow us more like him. The foolish person, the immature person in Christ, the trial comes in and they're like, God, get this away. Get this away. I don't want any pain. I don't want any suffering. I don't want any trouble. I want life to be easy. I want it to be smooth. I want you to be my genie in a bottle and I want you to give me my three wishes and make my life all good so I can smile and there's no, get it out, Lord. I don't want the pain. That's foolishness. Because what we're missing is a major part of the element of God's grace is his working in the midst of even our distresses or especially within the difficulty and the stress that we find within our lives. The author of the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, he, he totally got this point, how God's design within distress. And here's what he said here. He says, um, this is such a beautiful truth in theology of this hymn. He says, when through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of woe shall not be overflow. So God allows us to go in, but it'll never fully consume us. His promise to keep us, to be our refuge. For I will be with thee, I love this line, thy troubles to bless. Now notice here, very, very good wisdom here. Without the troubles, in some sense, there's no real blessing. It's the troubles that God uses to bring blessing to our lives. It's there where the greatest riches are often found in the Lord, in the gospel, and in our development in Him. He says, and sanctify to thee thy deepest. Sanctify is set apart, grow more like Jesus Christ. And I use your deepest distress to see you grow in Christ. Incredible wisdom here. God's design within trial. Here's the next verse. I love this one too. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. Thy flame shall not hurt thee, 
I only wham, wham, wham. Design, design. The flame as a design of God to do what? To what? Thy dross to con- dross is garbage. Thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Okay. The Lord gives us at times trials filled with distress to burn up the garbage in our lives, get rid of the sin, David said, and then to refine the gold, the gold of growing and Jesus Christ more within our lives as well. This is what we're seeing here. When I want to see grace in the midst of my distress, the most powerful turning point in doing that is looking for the grace of God working in the midst of my distress and drawing me closer to him and making me more like his son, Jesus Christ. All by the design of God. I want you to see this also within our text. Notice the progression of dislike for David in verses 11 and 12. Notice the progression that's happening here and we'll draw some application from this. Notice he says, I have become a reproach. Then he says, I'm an object of dread. Then he says, people see me in the street and flee. Then he says, I've been forgotten like one who is dead. So notice the distress of David includes a progressive dislike from others. Now, what do we take from this? Well, let's be wise enough. I think we said this last week briefly. Let's say it again, okay? Loved ones, cultural Christianity in this nation, that time's over, all right? That's done. That's a couple generations ago where everyone seemed to go to church and everyone talked about God and everyone had some kind of belief in Jesus, some kind of level, and it was kind of culturally accepted. Uh, that's the way it went, okay? That's done. You get that? You get that time is done, all right? No longer is, is Christianity cultural within this nation. The whole momentum is going away from this. This does not make us fearful at all. It's just recognizing the reality of the situation that we are living in. So don't be afraid of this at all, okay? Don't be afraid. Trust God, man, right here, right? And God be trust. And God be trust. Woohoo, woohoo, all right? This is it. This is a fly, okay? And God be trust. Now listen, now listen. So, so deaf community clapping, I love them so much, all right? Listen, listen, listen. Recognize this. Recognize this, okay? What we're starting to just see a little bit is the reality of our brothers and sisters and the vast majority of the Christian world across this globe. I mean, our brothers and sisters in all these nations, they've never known acceptance. They've been fighting for any bit of anything in the Lord Jesus Christ. They've been harassed. They've been hated. They've been hunted. The vast majority of history has the church written in the context of persecution. Our little experiment here in Canada for the last 120, 50 years as it's been, that whole thing, like, like they just like this foundation on biblical truth and, and Christian principles and giving God glory and writing scripture on your founding parliament bill, I mean, that whole thing, that's the exception in the history of the world. That's great. Praise God. So much grace. But we have been used to something that is completely atypical for the rest of Christian history. And so what we're doing is we're just starting to kind of clue in with the reality of what most people over time who have followed Christ have really experienced. Yeah, not being afraid, not being afraid. God be trust and God be trust. But I, I, just, I just want us to relate to David as we pull this to the New Testament as well. Look at the progression here of what's happening for David. He says, I become a reproach. And then from there, I'm an object of dread. And then from there, it says, uh, they see me in the street and they run from me. They're speaking evil of me. Then they, object of, of, of dread. So then they run away. And then th- this happens next. I've been forgotten like one who's dead. And then he says, I've become like a broken vessel. So just pause right there. So, so here's, the, here's the progressive dislike of the people he's encountering in his pursuit of the Lord. But watch a 
want you to see here as we go to the New Testament, notice all these things. Then here's the next one. Notice it's, it's just like, all these things are just like Jesus. And all these things our Savior went through of reproach and object of dread, people fleeing from him, ultimately wanted to kill him. He was totally busted and broken for us to die on the cross for our sins. This is the example he left. And, and this is what Jesus says in John 15. He says this, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. So these are the words of Christ preparing his church for the future in him. But then he says this in the very next verse. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. See, this is what's happening right now within our culture. Many portions of the church, okay, are starting to become like the world. They want to be like men. They want to be accepted. So they start adapting the theology and the doctrine of our world. They start leaving the truth of God. They start becoming like everyone else around them. And the world loves them. The world thinks, pat them on the back. We're all good because we all believe in the same stuff that's completely opposite of what God says. You want to be like the world, you'd be loved. It's easy. That's the easy way to do it. But here's where the sifting will take place to find out who's really in for Christ. Jesus says, but because you are not of the world, true followers of Christ, but I chose you out of the world, and therefore the world hates you. Not my words. Jesus' words. Talking to his disciples, preparing them for what but see, again, again, we're not trying to be hated. It's not, but the reality is to follow Christ. There's this enemy called Satan, and he hates Jesus. And he hates the Father. And he will get any agenda he can to rise up in a culture to come. Again, but not afraid, not afraid, not afraid. Filled with love and boldness and the power of the Holy Spirit, but understanding the reality of what David is going through, we are Now, here's where I get excited about this reality. What I get excited is, Without the cost in the church, what happens is a malaise comes upon the church. And there's so much apathy and so much complacency and lethargy. Because without any cost at all, the church is here and we, and we accumulate our possessions and we want more money and we live for the next vacation and we make it all about ourselves and we just want to focus on our home and make it look prettier and driving it, all these little things. And God's over here somewhere, but there's all these other things we're living for. And there's no passion. There's no power. There's no purity in the church because God is one of many other gods in our lives. That's been happening for, 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 for decades now across this land. But when the sifting starts to happen and all of a sudden there's a cost to becoming a true follower of Jesus Christ, the false ones, they fall away fast. And then you're left with a dedicated, cost-agreeing disciples of Jesus Christ being purified by the gospel, strengthened in true faith and God, living for him as opposed to the world. And then you have a people pursuing him, loving him, inviting the power of God, and you will find God's power there, God's joy there, and a transformation we've never known before as the cost increases, the joy, the power, and the glory of God also increases because there's actually a group of people gathering together who actually want to love God all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the power of the cost being raised and the sifting starting to happen. And that's why, honestly, I, I get excited. It's going to hurt, but it's going to be great because I think we'll see so much glory and power. And again, that's when God does his best stuff. And this is the situation of David. And this is the situation for us as well. And it takes us to the next one is the stand. Point number two, here's the stand. I will trust in God in the face of my enemy. So we have our situation, but now we say, okay, but, but, but what are we going to stand upon? I'll stand upon God. I will trust in God in the face of my enemies. So look at verse 13. 
For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. I want us to feel here how overwhelmed David is within verse 13, okay? Again, live in the text. He says, the whispering of many, that's vicious slander. We know what it's like when people speak viciously and slander us. It hurts. It's devastating. David is going through this all around him. He says, terror on every side. People scheming against him. People plotting to kill him. Okay, so just, just again, place yourself in a moment in David's shoes. This is your reality. What are you tempted with? You're tempted with fear. You're tempted with insecurity. You're tempted with paranoia. All, I mean, just people, people have to get me, man. They're trying to kill me. The, the wolves are circling, hungry for blood. And there doesn't seem to be any place of escape. But again, again, listen, listen, listen. In trials and testing like this, this is where faith is truly proven. In trials like the loved ones, this is when the counterfeits, counterfeits flee. They just run. This is when the false converts, they cave in. In trials and cost environments like this, this is where the prosperity gospel disintegrates. Because there's no power in that. It's not about the Lord, it's about us. This is when self-esteem movements reveal their utter desolation because there's nothing rooted in God. Again, it's just about making myself feel better of telling myself about the power of positive thinking. And this is what's going to happen. The church begins to get sifted, but the pure and the strong remain and say, it's the Lord we trust in. And the turning point again comes in verse 14, the very first word. Can you see it there? Verse 14, the very first word, but... But in the midst of all this attack, notice the true shield of David in the midst of his most straining times. Notice despair. Right right now in this room, there's forms of despair trying to hit many people. That's what the enemy does. Tremendous attacks of discouragement, depression, despair, being distraught, downtrodden. And these arrows, these flaming arrows that come in at us and try to get in our mind and make us think irrational thoughts and take us down paths that hurt us so much. Notice David's shield here. His shield that deflects these arrows coming at him. Ultimately, of course, this is the, this is the shield of what? It's the shield of faith. And notice his shield of faith, right? People trying to plot to kill him. He says, but I trust in you, God. I trust in you, O Lord. I say, I say, I say, you are my God. You are my God. I say, O God, my times are in your hand. In Ephesians 6, in the chapter of the armor of God, as the flaming arrows of the who, of the who, of the evil one, as they come against us, and the reality of that happening every day, Paul says, take up the shield of faith. This is the power right here. Take up, take up the shield of faith to protect ourselves from these flaming arrows trying to ruin our hearts. And in verse 15, David says, the hand of the enemies is coming in, but he says, but I know whose hand my life truly rests in. See that phrase in verse 15, my times are in your hand? This is a very powerful statement referring to the sovereignty of God. In fact, 
Uh, Psalm 31 verse 15 is the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8 verse 28. For those who love God, God works all things together for their good. This is the equivalent of that. Both stating God is in control and he uses all these things in my life ultimately for his glory and for my greatest good. Listen to this, loved ones. If you and I are going to walk by faith and not by sight, we have to have a very strong sense of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. If we don't hold tight to the sovereignty of God, then we don't know who's ultimately in control, and that's where our faith will begin to crumble. I need the doctrine of God's sovereignty, because if God's not in control, then who is? And if God's not in full control, man, then what in the world are we relying on, and who in the world are we resting in? Some of you are saying, what does it mean that God is sovereign? Let me, let me help you with three basic definitions of the sovereignty or to unpack what it means that God is sovereign. On the screen beside me here, for God to be sovereign, first of all, means that he is omniscient. It means that he is all-knowing. God is omniscient for him to be sovereign. I love this. This means this, that there is not one ounce or iota of knowledge in this universe that our God does not possess. There's not one fraction, minuscule amount of any knowledge that our God does not possess. Just think about this. If there were one minimal amount of information or knowledge God didn't have, then ultimately he would not be fully reigning over the universe. Because his reign would be shared then. Because someone else would hold some bit of knowledge that God was not privy to. And therefore he wasn't fully sovereign over creation. But he is fully sovereign over creation. And he possesses all knowledge. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. There is nothing beyond his knowledge. Nothing. I love the sovereignty of God. Second one is this. He is, he is absolutely free. For our God to be sovereign means he is absolutely free. This means that God does whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. How can he do that? Because he's God. His will stands infinitely above others. Our God answers to no one. He rules and he reigns. Otherwise, he wouldn't be sovereign. But he is sovereign in full control over all things. I love Psalm 115, verse 3. I read it this week. He says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. I love that. It's right in the Bible. Our God is in the heavens and he does, he does whatever he pleases because he is sovereign. And thirdly, this, he is omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful. Jeremiah asked rhetorically, is anything too hard for our Lord? The answer is no. There is nothing too hard for our God. He holds infinite power. There's nothing he cannot do. It's our sovereign God who created all things, who preserves all things, and who will decide all things. This doctrine is so critical because this is the doctrine. I love the phrase that says it allows us to know our God is ruling the universe with his feet up. All right? All right? He is ruling the entire universe right now, and he's not stressed out about it. Okay? Let's be crystal clear, loved ones. Let's be crystal clear. Um, our God is not losing sleep over ISIS. Okay? Okay, we might be, he's not, all right? First of all, he doesn't even have to sleep. Why? Because he's awesome, all right? Because he's God, eternally existing. He's not worried about the little movements of man down on the earth when he controls every single one. Let's be crystal clear. God's not biting his nails over the state of our economy. 
God's not biting his nails over same-sex marriage in North America. Let's be crystal clear, okay? God's not pacing in heaven saying, oh man, I hope they choose the right prime minister for Canada. Oh, if they get that wrong, it's going to be a big problem. He's not doing that. He's not doing it. He appoints every leader in his place. He's the one who decides all things. Listen, listen. He is in full and total control because he alone is God. And here's the power for us. The more we see our God, the more we know his mind, the more we are aligned with his will and aligned with his truth, and the more we are aligned with him, the more we sense his peace and understand he is awesome. He's in control. I belong to him. I cannot lose. No matter what happens to me, my God, my God, and my times are in the hand of my God. And therefore, therefore, the anxiety starts to decrease and the faith begins to increase and the worship of my God replaces the worry of my life. All built in the sovereignty of God. Amen. Amen. Let me unpack this a little further here with a little chart, okay? Worship and worry. Look at this, look at this. Here's what happens to so many of us, okay? In our lives, because we don't look at God and we don't worship, what happens is we look horizontally and we see the, see the difficulties, we see the frustrations, we see our inability, insufficient of ourselves, and we get naturally, we get, we get pretty frightened. Because we're like, man, I, I'm dead, I'm dead, what's going to happen? And, you know, and so worry on the seesaw, worry, worry gets way more weight now, and our worship's lacking, so our worship becomes so light and has no weight in our life. And worry starts to take over, worry makes us anxious, worry starts to cause us to bite our nails, worry gets us frantic, and we lose faith because our worship isn't there. We're not seeing rightly. And many of us here right now, that on the seesaw of these two, the, the worry has been way too much weight for way too long. This is where we got to, like that, right? And so here we go down here. And when, when the worship of God begins to carry the weight of the glory that he deserves in our lives, you know, when we're in here today and we're singing holy, 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 and whether we're connected or not, to, are we, when we really understand what's going on there and you see the Lord, you see his glory, you see his infinite power, obviously when you're looking at him, the worries of life begin to fade away and disappear because you can't truly worship God and be in a place where you're still concerned about the affairs of men. Worship is so important. So when we gather together as the bride of Christ, let me me just say, I know there's some complications with children's ministry today and stuff like that. Let me just say this though, getting to church on time is a big deal. Okay? And let me just say, like, 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 like I've watched this service and different things. I'm just like, if we don't understand what's happening, if we don't understand the weight of this, then we don't put the weight it deserves. And then we set ourselves up to be hurt with the other. But when we see God, we come together, we believe in prayer, we're in the Word. See, in the Word each morning is a form of worship. And it allows us to think God's thoughts and then move in God's ways and then have the power of the Lord defeat what the enemy wants to do. To cri- so many believers are crippled over here because they lack this. See, well, what does this look like? So many things. Here's one example from my life yesterday morning. I'm in 1 Samuel 14. I'm reading the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer. Two of them. Two. Okay? Going against the Philistine garrison. And Jonathan's like, man, I think, I think God, he can use the two of us to do something great right now. And this is what Jonathan says, his armor bearer. He says, he says for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. He says, uh, by many or by few. 
Okay? So Jonathan says, hey, there's just two of us, and there's a whole bunch of them. But the Lord, he's hindered by nothing. And he can save, and he can, he can bring this victory either by 3,000 or two people. And so he gives the Lord a little bit of a sign. Hey, Lord, they do this. And then he does. And so they walk up to two of them, and they defeat, and they, and they slay 20 people. And the Philistine camp's thrown into a whole fear, and a huge victory is won that day for the faith of Jonathan to save my God. Now, now, I can read that first theme of 14, and I say, man, Jonathan, he's amazing. I want to be just like him. And but instead, I can see the faith of Jonathan, but the faith of Jonathan and who? The faith of Jonathan and God. And I say, look at God. God only needs no one to do, but he takes two people defeating a whole thing because my God's awesome. My God's in power. My God's so in control. My God's sovereign. My God is limited by nothing. And the same God that Jonathan relied on as the God that I belong to as well. And so therefore, in this time right now, you, God, all glory, all power, all knowing, all these things, this is you. I love you. I belong to you. And in that moment, in that one little verse, with that one little phrase, I begin to worship my God as the weight of his glory comes upon my life and the weight of worry and anxiety begins to lift from my life. You see that? It's just a process of worship. You are choosing to take what you're reading and turn it into worship. And God changes us and transforms us in the midst of that. It's so simple, isn't it? But it's so powerful. It's so powerful. And this is what he wants to do. This is why I, I, I take my stand. I take my stand. I get my sticker. And God, I trust. I get my flag. But most of all, I, I get my God. And God, I trust. And God, I trust. So the situation, the stand, and now thirdly this, the, the supplication. The supplication is this. I call for favor in the place of shame. I call for favor in the place. Now, good theology means we pray for great favor. Look at verse 16. I love this phrase. Make your face shine on your servant. Underline that, circle that, highlight that. Do something to that, okay? Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. I love, make your face shine on your servant. Now, what David is doing here, David is borrowing from the uh, priestly blessing of number six. The Lord bless you, the Lord keep you. Tell me, the Lord make his face, his, his, okay, just his, his face. I'm glad you all know this. This is so great. His face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you, and the Lord lift up his, tell me, countenance, his face upon you as well. The glory, just think of it, the glory of the face of God shining upon you. Think about that for a few moments. What does that mean? What does that look like? How does that impact us? Think of the favor of God's face shining through the impact of the sunshine of heaven flooding into our souls. Now you and I, if you're like me and you probably are in this way, when it's a dark and dreary day and it's been raining and thunderlight, whatever, and the clouds have been so dark and it puts kind of a blue over the, over the land, but then all of a sudden at some point, the sun starts to break through the clouds. And a ray of sunshine, so, it's so beautiful to see us. And it, and it floods down and touches upon the earth. And you can see it from a distance. When we all see this, almost all of us, unless we're really grumpy in a bad mood, when all of us, as we see this, there's something in us, as we see the sunlight breaking through the clouds, it uplifts us, doesn't it? It gives us a sense of optimism. There's a level of encouragement. We're finding a joy. Hey, the sun's breaking through. It's shining down upon the earth. And this is what happens. Think of infinitely more 
therefore, as the rays of God's sun and the glory of his face begins to shine down upon his children. And I want you, there is no storm and there is no level of dark clouds that can limit the face of God shining upon his people when God decides he's going to do that. There is no situation too far from God's glory, his grace, and his love shining down upon us with his favor. Make your face to shine upon your servant. A fantastic example of this in Scripture is the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts 7. I've always been captivated by this. There he is being stoned to death. And just before he was about to die, it says his, his face shone like that of an angel. How? Why? It's... It's the favor of God upon him. And everyone there saw it. What did that look like? I don't know, but it would have been pretty awesome. And then he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He says, I see Jesus staying at the right hand of God in glory. And then he actually forgives, asks God to forgive those who are murdering him for his faith as he's being stoned to death for his love and Jesus Christ. What's happening right there? It's the favor of God bursting through, literally, as the storm clouds of death encompass Stephen. If it can happen to him there, it can happen to us anywhere. You cannot limit the favor of God. And we call upon this. We say, oh Lord, let us not be put to shame. David's saying, Lord, let me not be put to shame. We call for your favor. Shine, up, shine upon us, Lord, in the culture of evil, in this world of darkness. Shine upon us. Shine upon us as only you can in the amazing, amazing ways that you can. And listen, listen, listen. We, we ask for the favor of God. What does the favor of God look like? Ultimately, if we are saved in Jesus Christ, we have already received the greatest level of favor we could ever know. It's called the gospel. Okay? Let me unpack the gospel for you in terms of God shining his sun upon our lives. Okay? Malachi 4.2 speaks of, a, it's a prophetic word of Jesus. The sun of righteousness, S-U-N, the sun of righteousness will come and rise with healing in its wings. Jesus Christ coming to earth is the favor of God shining upon the world as the light of the world. That's why in John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever walks in darkness, you believe in me, you will have the light of life. You will have eternal life. Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection is the shining light of the gospel of the favor of God. 2 Corinthians 4 Paul says this regarding the glory of the gospel. He says, God has caused his light to shine upon our hearts. To shine upon our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Listen, in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you see? The gospel itself is the greatest element of favor God could ever give. And of course, in Revelation 22, when we're in glory and forever reigning, here's what it says, there's no need for lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. You see the theology of the Lord shining down upon, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make his face shine upon you. He has done that fully in Jesus Christ in the gospel. And if you are here today, and you know him, and you've been saved by him, not by works, but by faith, by grace through faith, if you are saved in him, you have been granted the greatest favor and privilege ever known to become a child of the king, adopted into the family of God. And I want you to hear this too as we end today. I want you to hear, David says, let me not be put to shame. If you and I are saved in Jesus Christ, listen, listen, that is an absolute guarantee that all shame has been nailed to the cross. 
I want you to, I, I want you to look at me right now. So I can see as many people as I possibly can to look you in the eyes. I want you to see this right now, okay? If you are in Jesus Christ and you've been set free by him, there is no shame upon your life anymore. All that shame, all that, some of us are here right now, we're flooded with guilt and shame. When you have Jesus Christ in your life, all, all of that shame is gone. All of that guilt is gone. It is all nailed to the cross of Jesus. Why? Because of the favor of the life that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is so beautiful and so powerful, and that's when we know he is shining upon us because this favor will carry with us all the way to the end, even in new heavens and new earth, again, where there's no need for sun because the light of the glory of God shines upon us for all of eternity. You tell me that's not glorious favor. That's incredible favor, and that's offered to all and given to all who receive forgiveness of sins by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me say it one more time. You know Jesus Christ, you love him, he saved you, there is no shame. Your shame is gone. It is gone, okay? And you have favor now because of the gospel. So, have we received grace? You better believe we have. And that's why, loved ones, when you and I have faith, we take our, we take our sticker and we stick it on something that tells us that it isn't true, all right? We take our sticker and we stick it to the lies of the enemy and we stick it to the world of evil. We stick it to those who tell us something different because we know by faith where we stand, who we are, and where we're going. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Amen. Amen. So Lord, with humility but with boldness right now, we do stick it to lies. And we do say in you we trust. We do say, oh Lord, the power of the glory of the gospel. All our shame is gone. It's incredible. All our sin, all the things we have done, it's all been erased because of Jesus Christ. And the favor, the Lord, he shines upon us. Oh, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and you are. And you are. Yes, Lord, the world is dark, but we are not afraid, I pray. We are excited to see how you will use us in the midst of a very exciting time, an exciting time in the power of the gospel. Yes, Lord. I pray now, Lord, you be filling us, filling us, man, woman, child, with unusual faith. There's some here right now, I pray, super, again, and God, we are asking for this to be a supernatural service. Please, Lord, no lethargy right now. I just, even now, you are reviving people in the cross of Jesus Christ. You are resurrecting people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are people here who have walked in and they were in this cloud of, of apathy and having no passion and lukewarm, but they are stirred up right now for Jesus Christ. They are, they've been activated in their heart and mind and, and they see it and like, this is it. This is why I live. And they know it's going to be hard, but they don't care because they love you and they see you or they believe you more than they do about any cost upon their lives. Oh God, help us. Help us to live this way. This place will be so powerfully used if you do this in us. The call is out, Lord. You are, you are, you are giving out the call. It is so clear. And I pray many will answer. I pray many will answer. And even now as we sing in response, may faith well up within us, tears in our eyes, and joy in our heart. All the faith eyes can muster right now in Jesus' name.